Bruce and Denise Morecambe have thanked people around the nation, saying the outpouring of love and support had made Daniel our son as well. They told how finally hearing of his fate was like being hit with a sledgehammer. Reporter Renee Henry is at the Foundation office, set up in Daniel's memory. And Renee Bruce Morecambe shared these memories, these emotions today on his birthday. He did, and just like Denise did so with amazing strength. It's been a whirlwind 16 days from the moment a father of three was charged with Daniel's murder to now the reaction from the Morecambs to conf to confirmation bones found at the site belong to their son. They say nothing could truly prepare them for that news and still they spent much of their press conference saying thank you for all the support. They finally feel they're entering the final chapter. Closure's not the word they'd use, but relieved. A monumental step in the family's life, but also a monumental step in the investigation process. The commissioner called Bruce and Denise Morecambe Saturday night to confirm three bones found at the Sunshine Coast search site a week ago were Daniels. Probably none, I'm probably still on a bit now. They already knew the answer in their hearts, but it didn't make it any easier. It's something like um, waiting for the sledgehammer to hit you, but um, when it does come, you, it's still a shock. A shock for Daniel's twin and older brother too. I think it was reality setting in that uh, no longer was their boy missing. Um, the reality was their boy was now murdered. A funeral for Daniel and whether it'll be public is still in the back of the Morecambe's minds. Priority is the painstaking search for more remains. Daniel will have a single funeral as he deserves um, in, in the most intact form as we can find. We yeah. will bring him home. It's going to take a little while, but we said we'd never give up. The community won't give up either in its show of support. Just so he can fly, because he's at peace now, he's just flying up to the heavens. Somehow, the Morecams still say they're not angry. Brett Peter Cowan will face court again next month, charged with Daniel's murder. I am enormously uh, indebted but in admiration of their, their courage, their character, their resilience, their determination. Despite the grim news, Bruce and Denise are preparing for their road trip to Cairns next week, visiting schools for Child Protection Week. The Daniel Morecambe Foundation is Daniel's legacy. Incredible strength that never ends. Renee Henry, 10 News. Welcome to the first episode of the True Crime Sisters for 2019. Happy New Year and we hope you all had a lovely Christmas with your family, friends and food. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we're looking at reopening our Patreon in the near future. We've had quite a few messages asking about it, which we weren't really expecting, so we thought we'll open that and give it a go. Um, we weren't actually aware that you guys were enjoying it as much as some of you seemed to be, which was really nice to hear. But we're looking at doing a different type of reward this time. With our old Patreon, we used to do like a bonus episode and we found that that was actually affecting our normal episodes because it was taking up so much time. So we are looking at doing still a bonus episode, but it's going to be a bit more of an informal look at each case that we've sort of done in the past. And it'll be more of our personal opinions, updates on cases, some theories that might have been a bit too controversial to include in sort of mainstream episodes. So if this is something that interests you or you did enjoy our podcast back when we sort of 
talked more about our personal opinions. Keep your eyes peeled. We're working on that at the moment. And we'll let you know probably on Facebook when we've worked out the logistics of that and have it back up and running. Today we're talking about a case that most of you are probably familiar with because it was huge in the media for many years throughout the 2000s in Australia. The abduction and murder of a bright, happy 13-year-old boy, Daniel Morecambe. Sunday the 7th of December 2003 was a day like any other for the Morecambe brothers, twins Bradley and Daniel and older brother Dean. They were due to do some work on their next-door neighbour's property in the morning, as they often did, to make a bit of extra cash. Their job was to collect ripe fruit that had fallen to the ground, the perfect job for three teenage boys to burn off some energy. The boys were hard workers and very good with money, even saving and pooling their cash to buy a small motorbike. It was looking like rain when the Morecambe family woke up that Sunday and their neighbour, Keith Paxton, called and asked the boys to come at 7am rather than 6am just to let the rain pass. This threw off the day a little bit for the boys' parents, Bruce and Denise Morecambe, who were holding a Christmas party for the franchisees of their business. They needed to head to Broadwater Picnic Ground to set up and make sure they could hold an undercover area. The boys headed off to work, but they were home by around 10am where they had something to eat watched a little bit of TV and had a bit of a wrestle on their parents' bed. They were in good spirits with school holidays just starting. Things were looking good. After a couple of hours of mucking around at home, Daniel decided he wanted to go to the local shopping centre, Sunshine Plaza, at Marucci Door. He wanted to go get a haircut and do a little bit of Christmas shopping. He asked both his brothers if they would like to come with him, but neither were interested which sadly they would both later regret. He put his wallet in his pocket, which held $100, along with a $10 phone card and a beautiful old fob watch, which had been engraved and given as a gift by his twin brother Bradley. Daniel walked from his house in Palm Woods to an unofficial bus stop that was known to locals under the Keel Mountain Road overpass. Daniel was there early and waited around for the bus, which was due to arrive at 1.35pm. Daniel drew in the dirt with a stick as he waited for the bus to arrive. Behind him, a tall, thin man with brown hair leant up against the overpass wall, quietly observing the young boy. 135 came and passed with no sign of the bus. Little did Daniel know, the bus had actually suffered a snapped accelerator cable and broken down on the side of the road before it could get to him. Passengers on the broken-down bus were impatiently waiting for a replacement bus, which ended up taking around 25 minutes. The policy of the bus company, Sunbus, was that the replacement bus would pick up the existing passengers and travel express to the destination, and a second bus would come to pick up the remaining passengers. The bus driver of the replacement bus was stressed and eager to get the irritated passengers to their destination 30 minutes late. As the bus went under the overpass, the driver saw Daniel waving at him with a stick and an older man standing approximately three metres behind him. As the bus driver Ross passed Daniel, he motioned behind him, hoping that Daniel would understand there was another bus coming, but he knew that Daniel probably wouldn't. Passengers on board the bus saw that Daniel looked instantly defeated as the bus passed with slumped shoulders and a big kick to the dirt below him. 
Poor Daniel had waited patiently so long and now the bus had just gone straight past and left him behind. The bus driver radioed the second bus to let the driver know that there was a young chap wearing a red shirt that needed to be picked up under the overpass. By the time the second bus rolled through, there was nobody under the overpass, so the driver shrugged it off and continued to the plaza. It was around 4pm when Bruce and Denise got home from the work Christmas party that they'd hosted. Bradley was the only son that was home, and Bruce inquired where his brothers were. Bradley told him that Dean had gone to a friend's house to hang out and Daniel had caught the bus to the plaza to go shopping and to get a haircut. Bruce and Denise unpacked from the party and relaxed for a little bit after their long day. Denise was hanging out some laundry when she started feeling like something was wrong. She grabbed a bag of rubbish to take down to the bins at the end of the driveway and used the opportunity to look up and down the street hoping to see Daniel returning home, but the streets were empty. She decided she had head to the overpass, hoping to meet Daniel on his way home from the shops. She knew the last bus of the day was the 5pm. Denise was there and back within 10 minutes, confirming to Bruce that Daniel hadn't been on the 4pm bus, so he must be catching the last bus of the day. At 5.30pm, Bruce headed out to the overpass, but there was no sign of Daniel. This was very out of character. The Morecambe boys were allowed to catch the bus, but they knew that they had to make sure they were on the last bus of the day at the latest. And Daniel was particularly trustworthy, so they knew something was wrong. Bruce went home and asked Bradley whether the 5pm bus was definitely the last bus of the day, and the two went onto the computer to check the online bus timetables. They couldn't work it out from the timetable, so they tried to think of reasons why Daniel might not have made it home yet. They decided to drive back to the plaza to check whether something had happened and Daniel had missed the last bus. Denise and Bruce jumped into the car with Bruce at the wheel and off they went. Once they got to the plaza, they did a few slow laps around the bus depot, but the whole area appeared empty. It was now after 6pm. Then Denise noticed that one of the buses had a driver still sitting in it. She jumped on and asked him about the timetables. Was the 5pm the last bus of the day? She was concerned to learn that yes it was. Bruce and Denise started to wonder whether Daniel had become injured walking home from the bus stop. Had he fallen over or been bitten by a snake? They drive the route that he would have walked home but there was no sign that he'd been there. When they got home, both Bradley and Dean were there, but still no sign of Daniel. Denise decided to call Sunbus, the bus company, but nobody was picking up the phone, and when she finally got through, they told her they weren't aware of any issues with the buses. They told Denise her best bet would be to go and find a bus with a driver in it and get them to call the depot. So Bruce and Denise headed out to the Nambour bus terminal, which was closer than the one at the plaza. Bruce stayed in the car while Denise jumped out to chat with the driver, but the driver delivered more bad news. The depot was shut. There was nobody there to contact. The Morkins were running out of ideas, and panic was escalating as the daylight slowly drifted away. They headed back to the plaza, hoping that there would be something there that would lead them to Daniel, but there wasn't. The plaza was completely empty.
they decided it was time to go to the police and headed to the Maruchidor police station. They went up to the counter and were met by Sergeant Robbie Munn, who greeted them. Bruce told him about their situation that evening and told him this was out of character for Daniel. When Munn asked them that what Daniel had been wearing, they couldn't answer. They had left early this morning and weren't sure. They gave the officer as much information as they could, which included a detailed description of Daniel's appearance. They made it clear to the officer that Daniel was not upset, depressed or suicidal. He was a happy kid. Although Munn took their details, he told the Morecams he wouldn't be able to log Daniel as a missing person yet. He did put out a be-on-the-lookout alert for Daniel, and he said he'd call them at 10pm when his shift was ending and send a patrol car to their house. Munn assured Bruce and Denise that it was probably all a misunderstanding. They see it all the time, but Bruce and Denise knew this wasn't the case. By the time they got home, it was dark, and Bradley and Dean confirmed that Daniel still wasn't home. What were they supposed to do? It seemed so wrong that police just expected them to sit and wait at home, not knowing where their precious son was. They went out onto their property with flashlights and searched from top to bottom, calling out Daniel's name, before heading back to the overpass. Again, nothing. At approximately 10.10pm, Munn called, and they told him there was still no sign of Daniel, despite their frantic searches. Another officer called just before 11pm and told them to come into the Palmwood Police Station at 8am to file a missing persons report for Daniel. Understandably, the Morecams didn't sleep at all that night. They drove around searching, just in case they'd missed something or Daniel was hurt somewhere. There was absolutely nothing. When Denise and Bruce arrived at Palmwood Police Station the next morning, it was still all locked up. Sergeant Laurie Davison arrived at 8am and the couple ran straight to him. He noted that Bruce and Denise seemed like a nice, respectable couple and took down thorough notes of what the couple had been through the day before. He made a few calls and asked the Morecams to go home and try and figure out what Daniel had been wearing the day before. He asked them if it was possible that Daniel was wearing a red t-shirt and dark shorts. The Morecams ran straight home to check which of Daniel's clothes were missing. At the same time, a, missings per- a missing persons report for Daniel was filed, as well as another be on the lookout broadcast for all officers. Later that afternoon, the leader of the Sunshine Coast Criminal Investigation Branch, Detective Senior Sergeant Paul Schmidt, was brought in to look at the case. They collected a photo of Daniel from the Morecams and by the evening the media was all over the story of the missing boy. Police asked the Morecams to come to Maruchidor Police Station where they were all interviewed by police to determine a timeline. At the same time, SES workers as well as forensic crews were scouring the area around the overpass looking for any signs of Daniel. Waterways were searched by Queensland police divers This was a full-scale search. Under the overpass, the forensic crew was able to take a plaster cast of a child's globe shoe impression and the Morecams were able to confirm that Daniel had a similar pair. When they checked his room, they found that the shoes were missing. They did, however, have the shoebox though, so they were able to hand that over to police. The Morecams were going through hell. How could their life have taken this turn? 
Daniel and Bradley Morecambe were born on the 19th of December 1989 at the Monash Medical Centre in Melbourne. They were teeny tiny, weighing around three and a half pounds each. Bruce and Denise were able to hold the babies in the palm of their hands. Because they were so tiny, they needed to be monitored in the neonatal intensive care unit and weren't able to be brought home from the hospital for over a week. Bruce was made redundant from his job when the twins were two and used his payout to buy a Jim's mowing franchise in Baronia. He was able to grow his business while Denise did the admin and raised the twins and their older brother, Dean. In 1993, Bruce was given the opportunity to move his Jim's franchise to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. This would be a great opportunity to grow the business and although Denise wasn't keen to leave Melbourne at first, the opportunity was too good to pass up. When they first moved to Queensland, they rented a property in Maroochydore, which is a beachside suburb, and Bruce began to grow his franchise, eventually employing his own franchisees. After working hard, they were able to buy a farm in Palmswood, and this is where they settled and made their family home. While Bradley and Daniel were twins and extremely close, They were non-identical and had very different personalities. Daniel was shy and quiet, whereas Bradley was outgoing. Daniel was known to be an avid animal lover, and it was thought that he would become a vet when he grew up. The family had many pets who Daniel adored, including a pony, cats, and a German shepherd named Chief. Daniel was also very wary of strangers, taking his time to warm up to people. He was also scared of the dark, often sleeping on the floor of Bruce and Denise's room. So you can only imagine with this in mind how scared they were for their son being out there as nights came and went. So back to the investigation into Daniel's disappearance. Police made some calls to the Department of Human Services to check whether there was any history of abuse in the Morecambe family, which there was not. Everything investigators found told them that Daniel came from a loving, warm family and that his disappearance was extremely out of the ordinary. The drivers of the buses were interviewed by police and confirmed that they'd seen a boy in a red shirt under the overpass, who they now assumed to be Daniel, as well as a shadowy male figure behind Daniel. The male was scruffy with messy brown hair and unkempt facial hair. Meanwhile, police contacted the missing persons unit as well as the child sex offender investigation team. They were asked for information about potential pedophiles living in the area. Police sourced hours and hours of CCTV footage from the Sunshine Plaza and were able to conclude that Daniel most likely never arrived there. They also checked his bank accounts and saw that they had not been accessed. The Morecambe family computers were seized to be checked. Police thought it might be a possibility that Daniel had spoken to someone in a chat room who may have been a child sex offender. Nothing was found. Denise and Bruce had by this time confirmed what police already knew. Daniel had been wearing a red quicksilver t-shirt and dark navy shorts when he went missing. (coughs) (laughs) I just had to stretch my legs because my foot was asleep. It wasn't long before police were looking at the possibility that Daniel was abducted and murdered and called in four investigators from the Homicide Squad to join the team. They set up a major incident room as the headquarters for investigators into Daniel's disappearance. The walls were covered in photographs, evidence material, 
and information about potential suspects. Phone calls were pouring in from the public with sightings of Daniel the day he went missing. Blake Rogers was a neighbour of the Morecams, so he knew them. He had been to Maroochador Beach that Sunday morning and drove past Daniel as he walked along the Woombaya Palmwoods Road towards the overpass. Blake confirmed that Daniel had been wearing a red t-shirt and dark blue shorts as well as a baseball cap. When Blake headed back out to work after a quick shower, he drove past Daniel again, this time under the overpass, apparently waiting for the bus. This was around 1.50pm. A man who was driving his three-month-old baby daughter around to help her fall asleep also spotted Daniel walking towards the overpass. At around 2pm, a woman named Judy Lade was driving her husband to work at a nearby nursery when she also saw Daniel standing underneath the Keel Mountain Road overpass. At this point, Daniel wasn't alone. There was a tall, skinny man standing behind him with one leg bent against the wall. On the bus that Daniel tried to wave down, there were a group of teenagers. They also noticed a tall, gaunt man standing behind a young boy, now known to be Daniel. One of the teenage girls would recount that the man made her feel really uneasy. He didn't move at all as the bus passed, so there was absolutely no indication that he was even there for the bus. She also remembered a square, older blue sedan parked near the overpass. A woman named Karen Brady also noticed the boy and the man standing under the overpass, and it stood out to her that the man was staring at the boy very intensely. Although there were other witness accounts, many with inconsistencies, two things were clear based on all of the witnesses' statements. There was a man standing behind Daniel at the overpass. There was a blue car parked near the overpass. Three days after Daniel's disappearance, police suggested to Bruce and Denise that it was time to put together a press conference that the public could hear from them. This would hopefully keep Daniel's case in the media for as long as possible. They held their press conference the same day at the Maroochydore Police Station, which was packed to the rafters with journalists, photographers and cameramen. It was the following day that police publicly confirmed Denise and Bruce's worst nightmare. They believed it was a very real possibility that little Daniel had been abducted and they were keen to speak to the man that witnesses had seen behind Daniel at the overpass. A week after Daniel's disappearance, police set up a mannequin under the overpass that was dressed in the same clothes Daniel had been wearing the week before. As well as this, they set up on Nambour Connection Road and started pulling over everybody that drove past, asking them about their whereabouts the week before. They were also beginning to compile a list of potential suspects or people of interest from calls they'd received from Crime Stoppers, as well as lists of local pedophiles. Detectives door knocked all the local pedophiles to get their alibis for the day Daniel disappeared. A name that came up fairly early in the police investigation, as a sex offender living in the area, was Brett Peter Cowan. He had been mentioned through Crime Stoppers and was a known local pedophile. Cowan was a man with a horrific past, which we will touch on a bit later in the episode. When police knocked on his door, they felt like it looked like the typical pedophile's house. There were little colourful windmills all lined up out the front, which looked like they were designed to attract children. 
Brett answered the door and they couldn't help but notice straight away that he looked like an exact match for the description of the man under the overpass with Daniel. He seemed happy to answer all their questions and told them that on the 7th of December he had gone to his boss's parents' house in Nambour to pick up a mulcher. He told police he had left home at around 1.30pm and the road trip had taken around an hour and a half. His route to pick up the mulcher put him in the exact area that Daniel had been at the exact time. Police asked him if he had noticed a boy in a red shirt under the overpass, to which he said no, but he had noticed a bus broken down a bit down the road. Brett was overly cooperative compared to other sexual offenders they interviewed. He happily agreed to giving DNA. Police noticed that his hair was freshly cut and he was recently shaved. Brett's girlfriend at the time, Tracy, confirmed his alibi for Sunday while in front of Brett and said that she hadn't noticed anything unusual that day. As the detectives were leaving, Tracy pulled them aside and told them that when Brett had returned home with the mulcher, he'd asked her to wash all of his clothes that he'd been wearing. Despite his cooperation, police were still very suspicious. They returned a couple of days later to conduct forensic tests on Brett's white Pajero, which again, Brett happily agreed to. They found no trace of Daniel and Brett's car didn't fit with the sightings witnesses had of a blue boxy car near the overpass when Daniel disappeared. Time passed and there was no significant developments in Daniel's case. In the lead up to the one year anniversary of Daniel's disappearance, police put together a sketch based on witness accounts of the man seen at the overpass with Daniel. The sketch showed a scruffy-looking man and police released it to the public by airing it on TV during a prime-time television show. Calls came in about the sketch and a few callers suggested that the sketch looked like non-sex offender Brett Cowan, which police agreed with. Brett was interviewed again on the 6th of July 2005 by Detective Sergeant Tracy Barnes and Detective Senior Constable Mark Wright. They wanted to know more about his trip to pick up the mulcher. Brett told them that he had been working in the garden, cutting down trees, when he decided to call his boss's father to ask if he could borrow the mulcher. Brett said he left home around 1, 1.30 with about an hour and a half round trip and spent a bit of time at his boss's father's house too. He seemed like he was stretching out his timeline a bit, perhaps to buy himself more time away from home. The detectives asked him if he'd noticed a boy standing under the Keel Mountain Road overpass, to which Brett replied, no. They asked him whether he'd seen the police sketches of the suspect at the overpass, and whether or not Brett thought it looked a bit like him. He laughed and said he thought it looked more like his brother than him. Detective Wright asked Brett, if you had abducted Daniel, would you tell me? To which Brett replied, probably not. Denise and Bruce continued pouring their efforts into finding their son. They followed all leads that came their way, even meeting up with questionable characters and going to questionable places. They invested a lot of their own money and even sold their investment property to fund their efforts. They organised posters, leaflets, TV ads, banners, billboards and fundraisers, including Ride for Daniel, where motorcycles and bicycles did a ride to raise money for Daniel's search. The Morecams also opened the Morecam Foundation, 
which aim to educate children about stranger danger and signs that something could be wrong. They wanted to prevent another child from suffering the same fate as Daniel. On the 12-month anniversary of Daniel's disappearance, the Morecambs held a vigil for Daniel, with 2,000 candles lit at the Siena Catholic College. In 2007, Denise appeared on TV show Australian Story, which is a weekly reality documentary series for those of you who don't know. She talked about how she'd turned to alcohol to help her cope with the loss of her son. Daniel's disappearance had absolutely devastated and broken the once happy and successful Morecambe family. In 2009, Denise wrote a number of emails to the state coroner requesting an inquest into Daniel's disappearance. The Morecams wanted to see who the people of interest were, and having an inquest held would force them to testify. The inquest into Daniel Morecambe's disappearance and presumed murder began on October 11, 2010, in Maroochydore. While the people of interest were going to be called to testify, they would be referred to by a number rather than their names to protect their identities. The aim of the inquest was to figure out whether Daniel was dead, if so how, when and where he had died, and what the cause of his death was. The Morecams were called to the stand to recount what had happened on the 7th of December 2003 through their eyes. In December of 2010, person of interest P7, or Brett Peter Cowan, was called to the stand. Many people in the courtroom thought to themselves how much Brett looked like the police sketches, including Bruce Morecambe. Brett gave his details and then detailed his past sexual offences. Brett Peter Cowan had been a revolting sexual predator from a very early age. At just 10 years old, he used to go to the swimming pool to lure younger boys into the change room where he would fondle them. If he was outside playing or riding his bike, he was always on the lookout for younger children he could lure away and molest. He even targeted and tormented a younger female relative for around nine years. Nobody knew about his behaviour and he came from an otherwise good family. On the 5th of December 1987, 18-year-old Brett Cowan was doing community service maintenance work at a childcare. He'd been ordered to do so after being charged with break and enters. There were many children at the childcare that day, but one seven-year-old little boy with bright white blonde hair stood out to him. He asked all of the children, who wants a golf ball? And of course, all of their hands shot up. He pointed at the little blonde boy and told him, if you want it, you need to come into the toilets with me. Despite the boy saying no, Brett grabbed him, put his hand over his mouth and carried him off to the toilets where he raped and assaulted him. The little boy sobbed and told Brett that he was going to tell his mum, to which Brett responded by grabbing him around the throat and threatening, do you want me to hurt you? By the time a childcare worker came looking for the little boy, Brett was casually sauntering out of the toilet like nothing had happened, but the little blonde seven-year-old boy's life was forever changed. Later that night, police knocked on Cowan's door with bags of evidence to arrest him, and he barely flinched. His family was mortified, but stood by him. The little boy was forced to sit across from Brett at the trial and give evidence against him, all while Brett Cowan smiled across at him. 
the jury found Brett guilty of indecent assault but not of sodomy and he served half of his two-year sentence. He was fully accepted back by his family when he got out of prison and they were willing to find him help that he needed, but he didn't care. He just went back to his old ways. Years later, Brett and his girlfriend Tracy were living at a caravan park when he would strike again. One night, the residents of the caravan park were having a barbecue and Brett and Tracy passed a little boy carrying barbecue trays. An hour later, the little boy was missing along with Brett Cowan. The residents of the caravan park were searching high and low for the little boy. His mother was frantic. After some time had passed, Brett Cowan reappeared wearing fresh clothes and carrying a towel. When Tracy inquired where he'd been, he told her that he'd been trying to steal sprinklers. In the distance, at a nearby BP service station, an ambulance and a police car were arriving. They'd had a call that a little boy had walked through the door, naked, filthy and bleeding profusely. The six-year-old was on death's door when he walked through the doors of the Palmerston BP on the 23rd of September, 1993. It was clear he had been through hell. Paramedics and police escorted him to the hospital. His face was covered in blood blisters, a result of being strangled for an extended period of time. He had a punctured lung and the entire bottom half of his body was absolutely covered in injuries. It was clear he had been sexually assaulted. Despite the fact that nobody thought he'd make it through the night, the little boy was able to give police information about what he'd been through. A tall, skinny man who resided at the same caravan park as him had abducted him. He even told them which caravan the man lived in. Word quickly got back to the caravan park about who the perpetrator was that had attacked and almost killed the little boy, and the residents were ready to kill Brett Cowan themselves. Police waited outside the caravan, which Brett had barricaded himself inside, before using a sledgehammer to break in and extract the pedophile. Cowan would eventually admit to this brutal, horrific assault and was sentenced on the 14th of June, 1994, on the charges of gross indecency, grievous harm and deprivation of liberty. He managed to worm out of his attempted murder charge because he had pled guilty. He received an eight-year sentence with a non-parole period of 3.5 years. The six-year-old boy's sentence would be much longer, with years upon years of post-traumatic stress disorder to deal with. For some reason, the parole board seemed to think that Brett Cowan's prospects of rehabilitation were good, despite two brutal assaults, and released him back into the public. So back to the inquest. After Brett had detailed his past crimes, He said that he had not had anything to do with Daniel's disappearance and he thought it was funny that police still thought it was him. He was asked, why is that funny? To which he responded, just having like to do something in half an hour and get rid of or, you know, anything like that. I don't think that's possible. Nobody in the room agreed that this was funny. It was put to Brett that he was a man that had a long history of very quick opportunistic attacks on children, which Brett agreed to. It was also pointed out that on the night of Daniel's disappearance, Brett Cowan had been using the internet from 8.50pm to 4am. When asked if he was looking at child pornography, Brett said no. When asked if he had looked at pop-ups that showed images of children, he said yes. 
it was thought that after abducting Daniel, Brett had gone home and had a seven-hour child pornography binge. The similarities between a potential abduction of Daniel and Cowan's earlier offences were pointed out. Not once, but twice in the past, Brett had managed to abduct and rape a boy within half an hour. And at the time, he was one of very few men who had proven history of taking young boys from public places and molesting them. This, along with his similarities to the police sketch, didn't look good for him. The coroner's counsel, Peter Johns, put to Cowan a scenario about seeing Daniel at the overpass. Of course you saw him. To have us believe you didn't see him is like suggesting to us that a snake might slide past an injured mouse and not take notice. Of course he attracted your attention, which is why you parked your vehicle right near the Christian Outreach Centre, which is an area you know so well. And I say you approached Daniel and you sat nearby him or stood nearby him and talked to him for quite some time, using your very well-honed skills in convincing children to do things that they might not want to do. And that's why people saw a man who looked remarkably similar to you doing just that. And you spoke to Daniel and you had some difficulty convincing him. He was a bit older than your other victims, but certainly within the range, I would say. And then you had a stroke of luck, you see, because the bus went past him and he didn't understand why. And that's just what you needed to push him over the edge and agree to go with this man who he'd been talking to for about 15 to 20 minutes who'd been telling him that he would take him up to the shops where he wanted to go or drive him back to his house up the road so he didn't have to walk. The Miss Bus finally convinced him that, all right, this guy sounds okay. You'd had 20 minutes by then, far longer than you'd normally need. John's detailed Brett taking Daniel to a secluded spot before assaulting and killing him. And unlike his last known victim, this time Cowan made sure his victim was dead. Brett immediately denied this, but his hands were shaking and he was sweating like crazy. Johns then said, no further questions, Your Honour. As Bruce Morpham watched the questioning, he thought to himself, this is him, this is the man who killed my Daniel. The Morphams were concerned that the police weren't doing enough to find out what had happened to Daniel. But little did they know that something big was going on behind the scenes. Mr Big, to be specific. The Mr. Big police procedure was masterminded and created in Canada. It is a way for undercover police officers to get a confession from a certain type of offender and is mostly used in murder cases. In this procedure, police create a fictional crime organisation and entice the suspect to join it by building a relationship, confidence and recruiting them to help in criminal acts, which the suspect is paid for. Once the suspect is deeply entrenched in the gang, he is told that loyalty is very important and persuaded into giving information about the crime they are investigating. The Mr Big procedure can't just be used on any suspect. It has to be a particular type of person who would fall for it. The suspect needs to be desperate and vulnerable and generally has known for years that they're a suspect. By all reports, Brett Peter Cowan was the perfect candidate for such a procedure. Police had built a profile on him over the years and found that he had a very high opinion of himself, had no issues breaking the law, was manipulative and self-absorbed. 
The procedure began on Friday the 1st of April 2011 when Brett was on a plane to Perth. As he sat in seat 42D, an attractive, fit young man sat next to him. Brett liked what he saw. The man introduced himself as Joe and told Brett he was looking to move to Perth. Based on police profile, Joe had been trained in how to become a character that would be very likeable for Brett. He talked about cars and living in WA, which was very interesting to Brett. Brett was clearly attracted to Joe, and this was a large part of the reason the police officer playing Joe was selected. Joe did an excellent job playing his role, despite the fact that he was actually disgusted by Brett and wished he could get away from him. The pair exchanged phone numbers before parting ways. The next day, Joe phoned Brett at around noon, and they chatted about cars again. Joe invited Brett to come out with him and look at cars. They decided on the following Monday. When the time came, Joe picked Brett up. Brett answered the door wearing no pants and smoking marijuana, but Joe just played along. They went out car shopping and ended up buying a 1996 Ford Fairmont for $2,650. When Joe and Brett were hanging out one day, building the trust in their friendship, a TV story about Daniel came on the television. Brett, who had been uninterested in the TV before, immediately turned and made commentary about the case, stating facts that most people would not know. This was around the same time Brett changed his name to Shadow Nanya Hunter. Brett was desperate for money at this stage, and Joe told him it was possible he might be able to give him some work. After a month or so of Joe developing his friendship with Brett, a friend of Joe was introduced to the procedure. His name was Paul Fitzy Fitzsimmons. Fitzy and Joe worked together, Joe told him. On the 5th of May 2011, Joe texted Brett, telling him there was some work the next day, two hours, $150, cash in hand. Brett gladly accepted this, of course. The next day, Joe picked Brett up and said they needed to go and collect money off a man named Dean for Joe's boss. Brett's role would be to count the money to make sure it was all there. When they arrived at the location, Joe stood next to Brett's door. One, so that Brett couldn't get out of the car, and two, so that Brett could overhear everything Joe and Dean were saying. Joe talked to Dean about trust, honesty, and loyalty over and over, with the intention of brainwashing Brett into realising the importance of these three things. Brett was told that Dean owed $6,000 for a gambling debt, but when Dean arrived, he only had $4,000. He begged and pleaded for another two weeks to come up with the money. Joe gave the money to Brett to count and said to Dean, the boss won't be happy, but he let Dean go and off they went. Obviously, this kind of work was hugely appealing to Brett. He loved breaking the law and he loved feeling like he was part of something with like-minded criminals. Brett became more and more involved in the group, doing jobs with both Joe and Fitzy. He was then introduced to a higher-up member of the group named Jeff who was supposedly Joe and Fitzy's boss. After the meeting, Fitzy told Brett that Jeff liked him. This made Brett feel really good about his position in the group. The type of work they were doing was escalating too. They were collecting money from sex workers and collecting guns. After some time, Joe was written out of the procedure. 
Brett was told that Joe was in some trouble and the gang was giving him $10,000 to go to London and start a new life. This storyline gave Brett the impression that no matter how much trouble a member was in, the crime gang would always take care of them. Brett was loving the lifestyle that the gang gave him. This was the first time he had been able to enjoy fine dining, nice cars and cash. Fitzy drilled the idea into Brett that the big bosses didn't care about the gang members' past as long as they're honest and are doing their work. More time passed and it wasn't long before Brett was told that he was going to be introduced to a higher-up boss again, named Arnold. Brett was being sent to Melbourne for work and this is where he was to meet Arnold. But first Arnold's bodyguard would need to run a background check. They had the bodyguard dressed up to look like a member of the Sopranos, covered in big gold chunky jewellery. Brett was made to write down all of his details so they could check his background. He was excited but nervous about his past being exposed. When Brett met up with the higher boss, Arnold, it came up that there was a red flag in Brett's police check. They found his subpoena for the coroner's court in regards to Daniel Morecambe's disappearance. Arnold had connections with a crooked cop known as Craig who had found the information for the group. Brett was told they would be able to help him sort the situation out. Brett was to meet up with Arnold and have a chat in the prestigious Swan River room at the Hyatt Hotel. The police operative team had set up in a nearby room and were monitoring the conversation between Arnold and Brett. Brett walked into the room and Arnold got straight to the point. It was a liability having the number one suspect in the Daniel Morecambe case in the group. It put the group in danger. Arnold's solution was that they could buy him an alibi. The group had already proven that they were in with the police by setting Brett up to meet Craig. The group had already proven that they were in with the police. By setting Brett up to meet Craig, Arnold assured Brett that they could make this go away for him. The catch was that Brett had to be honest about what he had done and his involvement in the Daniel Morecambe case. Brett would have to divulge every last detail to Arnold or he stood to lose everything that the group offered him. Arnold made it clear. I don't care what you've done, but you have to tell the truth. I've had a lot of real bad cunts on my books. What they do doesn't faze me. All I'm looking for is loyalty, respect and honesty. If you don't want to tell anyone, that's fine. It's between you and I. As I said, I pay good money to lots of people. I'm told you've done the Daniel Morco murder. Brett responded, yep. Arnold pushed further. What happened and how can I sort it out? After brushing Arnold off for a bit, Brett finally responded, okay, no, yeah, I did it. Arnold coolly played along. All right, okay, so you did it. But what I'm saying is I need to know if they've got DNA or any of that shit. Brett told him no. Arnold asked him to go through the details of what had happened to Daniel. Brett told him he noticed Daniel standing there and did a U-turn in the road to get closer. When the bus didn't stop to pick Daniel up, Brett apparently said, I'm going to the shopping centre. Do you want a lift? Daniel apparently said, yep. Brett then took Daniel to a secluded spot in Biowa, which is half an hour away from the overpass. According to Brett, they chatted in the car and Brett drove Daniel to an abandoned house. Brett then said, I never got to molest him or anything like that. 
He panicked and I panicked and I grabbed him around the throat and before I knew it, he was dead. Brett said he then took Daniel back to the car and drove 100 or so metres to an area of thick bushland where he threw Daniel down an embankment. He then jumped down and dragged Daniel's body through the trees, stripped him off and threw his clothes into a creek on the way home. Arnold asked Brett to draw him a map so the gang could make sure he hadn't left any evidence behind. After Brett confessed to Arnold, he was told to go out to lunch with Fitzy to give him some time to make some phone calls and try to figure stuff out. Now that Brett had gotten Daniel's murder off his chest, he felt very free to talk about all his disturbing fetishes. He said to Fitzy, I like kids and also men. I like my girls big and my men small. I'd be in trouble if I went to Indonesia or Thailand because of the easy access to children. He then told Fitzy the witnesses had been wrong. There hadn't been an accomplice with a blue car near the overpass. It was just him and Daniel. After lunch, Brett and Fitzy went back to the Hyatt where Brett was told that Arnold was sorting everything out. He told Brett they would be flying up to Queensland so Brett could show him where he had disposed of Daniel. When they got to Queensland, Brett gave them directions and as they drove, he pointed out landmarks from his old life, including the spot where he had abducted Daniel from and the nearby church car park where he'd left the Pajero. As they drove, Brett talked his usual rubbish, telling the undercover officers that he believed his pedophilia worked in cycles of six years. He suggested that next time he got a pedophilic urge, the group should send him to Thailand so he could just go and have some fun. He proudly stated, I am fucking proud to be a deviant. He talked about his love of porn and in particular bestiality. He led the undercover officers to the spot where he'd killed Daniel. The abandoned house was gone and the area was lined with sheds. They planned to meet up in the next few days so Brett could show them the spot where he'd disposed of Daniel's body. At 6.55am, Brett received a message from Fitzy. Mate, pick you up about 9.45. See you then, bro. As promised, at 9.45, Brett was picked up and off they went to the macadamia farm where Brett had left Daniel almost 10 years before. Another member of the crime gang, known as Ian, told Brett they needed to go one last time to make sure there was nothing there to link Brett to the crime. Little did Brett know, detectives were hidden in the area waiting for his arrival. When they got there, Brett jumped out and lit a cigarette. He barely moved a muscle when the undercover detectives jumped out at him screaming, Don't move, stay where you are, police. He calmly dragged on his cigarette as his rights were read to him. He was under arrest for the murder of Daniel Morecambe. Police hauled Brett Peter Cowan off to the Sunshine Coast Police Headquarter and charged him with murder, child stealing, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child under 16 and interfering with a corpse. Meanwhile, Police Commissioner Bob Atkinson made the heartbreaking call to the Morecams to let them know that there'd been an arrest in Daniel's case as the result of an undercover operation. Searches were underway to recover Daniel's remains and by the end of the search, they had found 17 of his bones, as well as shoes similar to the ones Daniel wore when he disappeared. Now that Daniel's body had been partially recovered, the Morcones were able to lay him to rest. 
His funeral took place on the 7th of December 2012, nine years after he was abducted and brutally murdered. More than 2,000 people showed up to pay their respects, many of them wearing red, the colour Daniel was wearing when he went missing. Bruce told mourners not to be sad, but to be happy that Daniel had now been returned to his home, to his family, and to use this opportunity to remember Daniel's legacy in protecting children from predators. A private service was held the following the public one. The trial of Brett Peter Cowan began on the 10th of February 2014 under Justice Rosalind Atkinson. He pled not guilty, but despite this, the jury found him guilty of all charges. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years, but Justice Atkinson made it clear that it was unlikely he would or should be released after 20 years. Our deepest and sincerest sympathies go out to Daniel's family and friends. He sounded like such a sweet young man, and I'm sure he would have made an amazing bet had he been given the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and until next time, please stay safe.